Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Activists in more than 55 cities tell the Biden administration to stop misleading the American people in a buildup to war with Russia. They lied about Iraq. They lied about Afghanistan. They lied about Libya. They lied about Grenada. They lied about Somalia. They lied about Panama. And they're lying about Russia and the Ukraine. And see, they think that we're so stupid that we'll just accept this. An independent journalist, Ford Fisher, who was on the ground January 6th and was penalized for documenting history, discusses corporate media's biased coverage of the left, the direction of right-wing protests, and how social media giants censor content and control users. Essentially, once you get outside that kind of center left to center right, that's where the censorship tends to happen. And again, that hits the true left very hard. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. As the Biden administration continues to send heavy weaponry to Ukraine, still claiming that an invasion by Russia is imminent, activists are warning that these claims are just the latest U.S. pretense to start a new war. As we reported on our last show, 100 organizations, including Code Pink, Women for Peace, and Physicians for Social Responsibility, signed a letter urging Biden to end the dangerous brinksmanship with the world's other major nuclear power and to recognize the promise that the U.S. made to Russia beginning in the 1990s to not expand the NATO military alliance one inch closer to Russia's border. But yet that expansion has occurred right up to Russia's border, and Russia is drawing the line at Ukraine. Since last week's letter, the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, Black Alliance for Peace, and other groups held rallies on February 5th in more than 55 cities, including here in D.C., outside the White House. In earshot of the Oval Office, several speakers referred to cracks in the wall of war propaganda that Americans are presented with daily. Leo Flores of Code Pink contrasted the push in Congress to approve $500 million more for war in Ukraine to the failure to pass the Build Back Better legislation that would assist American families. So there's no money for clean water in this country. There's no money for child care. There's no money for housing, for free college, or for student debt relief. But there's money for war. There's always, always money for war. There's no money to fight the pandemic. In fact, the government gave up. The Biden administration surrendered to the virus, but it thinks it can win a war against Russia? Come on. More voices from the rally after headlines. In the meantime, the investigation into the January 6th attack on their capital is leading to one bombshell revelation after the next. This week, it was reported that Trump took 15 boxes of White House records to his property in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, and had to return them to the National Archives. According to the archive, many records received from the Trump White House are torn in pieces and taped back together. And the January 6th committee said that all records of Trump's phone calls during last year's attack on the Capitol are missing. Separately, a new book by New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman says that Trump staffers periodically found wads of printed documents flushed down and clogging the toilet and believe that Trump had flushed them. This was the exchange Thursday between Haberman and CNN's John Berman. 
his toilet, like no mistaking whose toilet it was. It was in the pipes. I mean, it was in the pipes. And uh, and this was this was this was this was his bathroom. So, yes. Uh, And I'm asking about these specifics again, because we've heard again from Andy Carney's reporting, you know, for years now, he he would tear things up. I mean, you tear things up, you know, you throw them around, you throw them on the floor. That's one thing. You walk them into a toilet and you flush them down. That seems to be another. The National Archives has asked the Department of Justice to investigate whether Trump violated the Presidential Records Act. And the House Oversight Committee has also announced an investigation. Along with these continued revelations, there is continued fallout from a February 4th resolution passed by the Republican National Committee declaring the January 6th attack on the Capitol to be, quote unquote, legitimate political discourse and censoring two Republicans, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinziger of Illinois, serving on the House Committee investigating January 6th. The RNC resolution was made even after Trump admitted in a rally last month that his goal on January 6th was to overturn the results of the 2020 election and that he believed former Vice President Mike Pence had the power to overturn it that day during his ceremonial acceptance of the votes from each state's electors. As more and more evidence piles up pointing to an attempted coup, the Department of Justice has charged only a handful of people with seditious conspiracy, and none of them are named Trump. There is a bright spot of news coming from Capitol Hill. On Tuesday, the House of Representatives passed bipartisan legislation the Postal Service Reform Act of 2021, which will finally deliver justice to our National Postal Service, the post office that Americans rely on and is even included in the Constitution. Since 2006, under a law pushed by Republicans and signed by George W. Bush, the U.S. Postal Service has been forced to pre-fund retiree health benefits decades in advance, even the benefits of staff not yet hired. And this rule that no other public agency or private business must follow has financially crippled the post office, which has been further crippled by Trump appointee for postmaster Louis DeJoy. Now, this legislation, which the House passed 342 to 92, heads to the Senate, where sponsors say it also enjoys huge bipartisan support. The movement for Black Lives is back in the news following 22-year-old Amir Locke being shot to death by police during a no-knock raid in Minneapolis. Massive protests since Locke's death have called for the abolition of no-knock raids, which Minneapolis activists believed had been curtailed along with other police tactics after the murder in 2020 of George Floyd, which led to a worldwide uprising against racism. Here in D.C., another potentially deadly police tactic is getting renewed attention from activists. Chantal James has more. As the next phase in tireless efforts to protect our communities from police violence, defund MPD coalition and stop police terror project in partnership with Black Lives Matter are beginning a multifaceted campaign, including appeals to elected officials in direct action 
with the aim of ending the violent policy of stop and frisk here in D.C. They kicked off the campaign with a panel discussion, including voices like Defund MPD Coalition's Natasha Knapper, panelist Carlos Sandina, attorney with Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, gave historical context for stop and frisk and also explored its harm that continues to this day. Stop and frisk was first coined by the Supreme Court um, back in 1968. And it was rationale that officers should be able to approach individuals for short detentions to ask them and figure out whether or not they're carrying a weapon, whether or not they're about to commit a crime. And it's really escalated since then. So police have essentially a hunch to believe that an individual is carrying something illegal, like an illegal firearm or drugs or something like that, or they're about to commit a crime. And based off of that, they're allowed to investigate further. So a stop usually takes place in that an officer approaches you on the street. They start asking you questions of why are you here? What are you doing? And then they might escalate it to a frisk in which they pat down the exterior of your clothes, trying to see if they can, in plain touch, figure out whether or not you have something dangerous in your pockets, like a gun. Um, And then that can escalate. And that's the thing people um, often forget about stop and frisk. It's a starting mechanism. It's the start of an interaction that can escalate into a full-on search, to an arrest. And then unfortunately, we oftentimes see it actually lead to abuse. And especially when black and brown individuals, it's nothing new, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s to this very day, 80 to 90% of stops, no matter what city you're in, is going to be against black individuals. And then it's brown, Hispanic, Latinx, uh, Muslim, um, people who come from other countries, things like that, that make up the majority of the rest of the stops. So one way you can contribute to the campaign is to sign Stop Police Terror Project's petition to the D.C. Council demanding that they stop the policy of stop and frisk, which can be found on actionnetwork.org. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, in culture and media, the opening ceremony of this year's Winter Olympic Games was severely tarnished by broadcaster NBC engaging in an anti-China and anti-Russia screed. The minutes-long presentation even included a video laying out the U.S. State Department's unfounded talking points accusing the host country of genocide, or specifically cultural genocide, and human rights violations against the Uyghur Muslim minority a still inflammatory charge that China denies. Five years ago, studies concluded that the U.S.-led war on terror had killed at least 4 million Muslims since 1990. A recent report estimates that 6 million people, mainly Muslims, had been killed just since 9-11 in direct and indirect consequences of U.S. and NATO attacks waged in seven predominantly Muslim countries. The hypocrisy abounds. These unfounded charges are from the U.S., which exterminated millions of indigenous people of North America and then took their children away from them, placing the children in abusive boarding schools to erase their native culture. These charges are from the U.S., 
which enslaved Africans and killed millions in the Philippines, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Libya. These charges are from the U.S., which gives the most military aid $3 billion a year to another settler colonial state, Israel, which was just designated by Amnesty International to be an apartheid state with crimes of humanity committed against the Palestinian people. But NBC did not mention this international crime of apartheid or this long real history of real genocide committed by the United States. Even though the trend in the U.S. is to erase history, it is obviously up to us to preserve it, to tell it, and to stand and deliver facts. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. They call it a pipeline, but those on the front lines know that black snake was sent for us to grow, to shed the skin our ancestors pray, of wounds old and calloused, so that we may stay, so that we may unite, unity our tool. No weapons are found in this court of rule. Men becoming ki'ai, steadfast in their guard, protecting women's hearts as their song become roots, roots to cast out healing for all sentient beings, to honor sacred mother, heart forward we heal. The salmon will run, the mountain will breathe, the rivers will flow. The rainbow is here and prophecy tells us all generations will hear. Nations and our people that been living here for thousands of years. Stand up. We've been fighting for our freedom since the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Stand up. Like Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Leonard Peltier. Stand up. Now they poisoning the waters for our sons and our daughters, so we on the frontier. We won. One nation, one cause, one people, one tribe. Now it's us against the pipeline. Get on your feet for standing rock, and we'll show you how strong we could be when we unify. To legitimately protest for their rights. They can be framed with false charges and put in prison for years, like the Wilmington 10. Now I know some people out here were not even born when the Wilmington 10 were sentenced to nine or 10 years before their, their um, um, verdict was overturned. But please look that up, Wilmington 10. And this country is guilty not only arming criminals in Ukraine, but arming criminals in Central America, for which the, U the International Court of Justice found the United States guilty in 1986 
and ordered the United States to pay Nicaragua billions of dollars for the damage that they did to that poor little country. And the United States has done nothing, has ignored the verdict. Murderers! We have to force our country to do what is right. That's right. And when we do that, it will cast light on all of these other crimes that are done with our tax dollars. So we say NATO's got to go, got to go, got to go. We say NATO's got to go so the people can live in peace. Help me out now. We say NATO's got to go, got to go, got to go. We say NATO's got to go so the people can live in peace. Did I sing it in the wrong key so some of y'all won't, won't sing with me? Listen. We say NATO's got to go, got to go. Got to go. We say NATO's got to go so the people can live in peace. From Kosovo to Afghanistan to the fractured Libyan shore, the bureaucrats of NATO feed the hungry gods of war. They say that we're in danger and that's why we need more arms. But the threat of climate chaos doesn't seem to raise alarm. We say NATO's got to go, got to go, got to go. We say NATO's got to go. So the people can live in peace from the USA to Poland to Ukraine to Brazil. NATO sells weapons and leaves the people with the bill. We say NATO's got to go, got to go, got to go. We say NATO's got to go so the people can live in peace. We can't afford good housing or the right to good health care. We can't afford clean water cause the military left us bare. We say NATO's got to go, got to go, got to go. We say NATO's got to go so the people can live in peace. NATO rules by violence and bribes and threats and fear. But there's cracks in the foundation, and NATO's end is near. Remember what happened at Jericho. The trumpets began to sound. Joshua commanded the children to shout, and the walls came tumbling down. We say, NATO's got to go, got to go. Got to go. Hey. We say NATO's got to go so the people can live in peace. That's right. Make some noise for Miss Lucy Murphy. Please join me in welcoming David Swanson. Give him a hand as he comes.
great to be here. Great to see y'all. Haven't been to any events in a while. The people inside this house behind me sometimes believe they can sell us what we do not want to buy. They've got a recipe for mixing up irresistible poisons. They do the polling. They test out the phrases on focus groups. They turn entire governments into a single person and that single person into Adolf Hitler. They say defense and democracy and appeasement many, many times. They restage group photos in armchairs, bravely screening the murders of distant enemies. But sometimes they miscalculate. Sometimes, as we've just heard, it's a cumulative result of decades of spin from numerous administrations when even a good corporate reporter who wants to believe everything just can't stomach any longer the recycled lies that he's fallen for over and over again. And so they tell us that Russia's going to start a war in Nazi fashion with a false flag excuse, albeit against a U.S.-backed coup government with Nazi elements in it. And they tell us Russia did this eight years ago, and there never was any coup. And everybody believes it or accepts it, because how are you going to remember anything from eight whole years ago? We only have the actual recordings of them plotting the coup and photographs of them handing out pastries to the protesters. Have they ever once brought us any goddamn pastries out here? Not once. But they seem to have misjudged their own approved journalists in claiming that Russia is about to act because one of them, like Oliver Twist in the orphanage pleading for a little more food, spoke up and said, sir, could we have just the slightest bit of evidence, please? And the very concept of evidence seemed foreign to them. And that seemed weird to everybody, even people who believe that Trump is Putin's servant and NATO is a philanthropic, charitable organization. What if they're wrong about more than the ability to sail through without evidence? What if people are not actually impressed by armchair killers watching families blown up on a screen? What if they're wrong? Not about the U.S. public wanting a war with Russia. They know the U.S. public does not want a war with Russia, at least not with any of the people who matter, the U.S. people dying in it. But what if they're wrong also that we want or that we will put up with the reckless, macho, blustering and threatening that risks a war? A war that risks a nuclear war. A nuclear war that risks ending all life on this planet. What if they only consulted the same geniuses who told them to value the filibuster and bipartisan harmony over the lives of struggling people? What if we agree with them on the need to stand up strong and stop appeasing evil forces, but the evil forces that need resisting are not based in Moscow. They're over there working at Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and down the street at the Washington Post and toiling away in the US government dealing weapons around the globe, pushing for more and more bases and missiles and insisting on this Eurasian pivot away from small time terrorists to demonizable governments because it's better for business. 
We need a Department of Defense against the warmongers. And in its absence, we gotta build it ourselves, we gotta do it ourselves, we gotta build on what's here and in 35 some places around this country today and stop another goddamn war. Thank you for being here. Thank you, David Swanson. No war with Russia, disband NATO. No war with Russia. No war with Russia. No war with Russia. Next up, I want you all to join me in welcoming Leo Flores from Code Pink. Give Leo a hand as he comes. Thanks so much, Sean. It's cold out here, so I'm going to keep it brief. I mean, we've all heard now about how the Biden administration is trying to manufacture a crisis in the Ukraine and about how this narrative is coming down. But why? Why, why do we do this right now? Well, I don't know if you've seen the polls lately, but Biden's at 33% approval rating. I mean, I think it says quite a lot when your approval rating is lower than Trump's ever was, right? I mean, it's pretty incompetent is what we, what we have here. It's a totally incompetent administration that has totally failed in its domestic agenda. You know, there's no Build Back Better Act yet passed. There's been no student debt relief. The Voting Rights Act has totally failed as well. I mean, Democrats are set to lose big in the midterm elections that are coming up. So of course, Biden had to do something. And of course, what they always do, what the politicians in the White House always do is they manufacture wars to not only benefit the people that fund them, but, but also to, to boost their own popularity. I mean, and it's not just the his his it's not just his domestic policies that has failed. In terms of foreign policy, Biden is basically Trump part two. It's a second Trump administration, right? I mean, he's broken all these promises and he he's made things worse throughout the throughout the world. Whether we're talking about sanctions on Cuba, the hybrid war on Cuba, it's gotten worse. Yemen, you know, about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, he said the war on Yemen would end. But it's not even close to ending. In fact, the U.S. keeps supporting the Saudi war on Yemen. Hey. Biden promised that he would go back to the Iran deal, and there's no Iran deal yet, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. All these broken promises. He keeps bombing, raiding, and sanctioning Syria. He sabotaged the, Venezuela, the dialogue in Venezuela and hasn't lifted the murderous sanctions. He supposedly ended the war in Afghanistan, ended, right? But right now, the Biden administration is sanctioning Afghanistan so much that millions of lives are at stake this year alone. I mean, it's very possible that more people will die in Afghanistan this year because of the sanctions that died in the 20 years of war in Afghanistan. It's ridiculous. It's completely disgusting. But Biden, he needs a win. He needs to look tough. I mean, I don't think he looks tough, though. I think he looks like a total psychopath. Right? He's threatening a war with a nuclear power. And between the U.S. and Russia, they own something like 90% of the nuclear weapons in this world. And he's threatening a war at a time when the nuclear agreements, the treaties, all the mechanisms that are supposed to prevent an accidental nuclear war, well, they're at their weakest that they have been in decades. And so in the Senate, I know Sean talked about this a little bit, but in the Senate, they're about to pass a Russia bill. And, and this bill makes me fe fear that even if no shots are fired between Ukraine and Russia, if there is no invasion, if there is no US war, well, 
Congress is going to just start an economic war against the Russian people. Exactly. Right? Because in this bill, and before I get to the sanctions, let me just say, this bill includes another $500 million in weapons to Ukraine. Right? That's on top of the $770 billion Pentagon budget that we have. So there's no money for clean water in this country. There's no money for childcare. There's no money for housing, for free college, or for student debt relief. But there's money for war. There's always, always money for war. There's no money to fight the pandemic. You know, people, I mean, are struggling under the pandemic. Workers are struggling, families are struggling, and the, and the government hasn't done anything. In fact, the government gave up. The Biden administration surrendered to the virus, but it thinks it can win a war against Russia? Come on. <laughs> the main thrust of this bill in the Senate, though, are the sanctions that are really designed to force the Russian people into submission by destroying the Russian economy. And this decision is going to have fatal consequences because we know that sanctions kill. And as big as Russia is, it won't be immune to the effect of the sanctions. Economic sanctions can be just as brutal as bombs. I mean, really think about that. That in Afghanistan, more people might die this year than in 20 years of war because of sanctions. That's completely insane. Sanctions aren't a foreign policy tool. They're a weapon. And they're a weapon that causes mass destruction. So we have to keep organizing to stop this bill. We have to keep organizing to stop this war. We have to keep organizing not just stop, not to just say no to NATO expansion, but to disband NATO, to abolish NATO. We also have to reject this idea that Russia is evil and the U.S. is good. I mean, what's evil is war and what's good is peace. It's pretty clear to all of us here. We need diplomacy, not dialogue, not this dangerous posturing that the Biden administration is engaging in. And finally, we need to cut the Pentagon budget and fund yeah. our communities yeah. and fund social justice in this country because yeah. we can afford it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. No war with Russia. Disband NATO. 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 No war with Russia. That's right. Glad y'all still sticking with us. I know it's cold out here, but we are in the dead heat of imperialist aggression and we must continue to organize to stop it. And so next speaker we want to bring up today, longtime anti-war organizer, anti-imperialist organizer. I want you all to join me in welcoming Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program. Give Brian a hand as he comes. Thank you, Sean, and thank you to Black Alliance for Peace, to Code Pink, to the Claudia Jones School, to all of the organizations that are here today that are trying to come together to build political unity among different left forces against a common foe. And the common foe at this moment is the possible NATO-led, U.S.-NATO-led war against the people of Russia, or the war against China, or the war against Cuba, or the war against Venezuela, the war against Zimbabwe, the war against any government that has the capacity and the desire to be independent of U.S. domination. And the U.S., as, as Leonardo said, uses sanctions and war 
economic war and military war to destroy people who want to be independent. But in order to carry this policy out, to spend a trillion dollars each year for war, and that's what the U.S. actually does spend. It's about $800 billion in the Department of Defense, but when you look at the Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Ministry, of Homeland Security, the real number is a trillion. The only way to get the American people to say yes to spending a trillion of their dollars every year is to make us fear or hate other people. So we're told, fear the Russians, hate them. Fear the Chinese, hate them. Fear the Cubans and the Venezuelans. Iranian. Fear the Palestinians. And, Iran. and as long as the Iranian people, as long as you hate them and fear them, you can say maybe, just maybe, the government has a point in spending a trillion dollars of our money for death and destruction. Maybe. Because fear and hatred are a form of collective deflection away from what people know to be the real problem. I mean, we have 900,000 people will die very shortly in the United States because of the capitalist government's failure to keep the people safe in the middle of a pandemic. 900,000 dead, not killed by Russians or Chinese or Cubans or Venezuelans, but by a system that puts profit before the lives of human beings, that looks at all of us as exploitable workers or exploitable consumers or exploitable tenants or exploitable students but not as actual human beings and when we look at this pattern of behavior we can discern that this pattern has a has a reason that there's a method and a reason for this madness and the reason is capitalism itself. It's the social and economic order whereby 1% of the population or 700 billionaires have more money, more assets than 70% of the population. Where one out of every two people in this, the richest country of the world, live either in poverty or near poverty. So if we live in a society and a government that's endlessly at war against poor people abroad and conducting a war against poor people at home and its Democrats and its Republicans, we must come to the conclusion that our enemy is not making mistakes. Our enemy is in charge of a system which is a mistake, and that system is capitalism. That's right. We can't separate imperial foreign policies from domestic policies. When I was a young teenager, we were chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? They, 
LBJ was not a Republican. He wasn't Ronald Reagan. He wasn't Donald Trump. He was the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And yet they were killing Vietnamese people. I thought the war in Vietnam was a mistake. But I found out it's not a mistake. It's the nature of the capitalist system itself. And that's the problem. All right, Brian. So we're out here today against war with Russia. And we also have to say we're out here today and we're fighting our own war against the capitalist system. And it's not divine by God. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't have to last forever. It's a thing that was created by a class of slave owners and genocidal lunatics who settled this society. And we can take this land and our society back from the capitalist class. That's our job. Thank you very much. Money for jobs and education, not for war and occupation. Money for jobs and education, not for war and occupation. That was Brian Becker, Leo Flores, David Swanson, and Lucy Murphy. Among the speakers at the Disband NATO No War with Russia action and rally in front of the White House on February 5th, 2022. That rally was one of more than 55 rallies held around the country saying no to war. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Averam. 
Now I'm joined by Ford Fisher, editor-in-chief of News to Share. That's an online media outlet based here in Washington, D.C., known for covering protests and actions here nationally and around the world. So glad you could join me for it. Yep. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk to you because we played your clip last week of the action by the Palm Collective and other organizations. It was called Biden Get a Spine. And it was really talking about the collapse of the Build Back Better legislation, the fact that nothing's happening with that. Now they're talking about means testing the child tax credit, which was very popular with people, lifted millions of children out of poverty. And aside from the coverage I saw you give, I don't know how many people were out there. I'm, I'm just, I want to talk about coverage, who gets coverage and why. So give me your thoughts on who covered that march and what you see happening in terms of protests and who gets coverage. I mean, frankly, in terms of who covered it, not very many people. My outlet is a small independent news outlet that specifically is focused on the sort of micro niche subject of political activism, particularly but not exclusively in Washington, D.C. And I did not see major news networks out there. Obviously, you know, Build Back Better has uh, implications nationally, right? It would change the lives of uh, a lot of people in the United States. So the subject that they were talking about is certainly relevant on a larger scale. Uh, but in terms of the number of cameras there, not too much. I mean, just a general trend that I have found is that I think that mainstream media tends to be very focused on stories that have very simple binaries. So the media was very interested in protests during the era of Trump because you had people who were protesting about the things that Trump was doing uh, or issues related to policing, which kind of more broadly spoke to a division that could be exemplified by sort of the Trump and police and the sort of alliance there versus, you know, civil rights activists and so forth. But when you have a situation where you have progressives who are holding the American left accountable, right? The the Democratic Party and, and so on. I think that the media tends to sort of ignore those kinds of events where there is, I don't know if I would call it self-accountability because I'm not sure that the activists out there would see themselves as on the same side as Biden. But when you have protests criticizing a democratic administration from its left, the media tends to ignore it. And I think it's because they can't make a political binary out of it. Right. I guess similarly, we covered the anti-war protests in front of the White House, basically criticizing Biden and Democrats in Congress for ratcheting up war tensions against Russia and in the region of Ukraine. And I don't remember seeing any cameras out there. So we covered it when you and other independent media were not banned from YouTube, but were demonetized in, in the sense that, you know, you have a business. Yeah, okay. demonetized twice, six videos removed in the last year, etc. <laughs> okay, so is that still ongoing? Or are you back able to make money on YouTube? At this moment, I am monetized again on YouTube, but I would say that it makes me concerned for sort of the future of YouTube and that they kind of made it so that this year the subjects that they attach sort of broader restrictions on than before are COVID and the elections. 
And so my style of journalism is that I just film things that happen, essentially. I don't do commentary. You, you hear very little from me. I don't tell the audience whether they should believe that the people I'm filming are sort of good or bad. I'm really just trying to create a primary source documentary history of the things going on. Right. And so when I filmed Trump give his 70-minute speech on January 6th, I published that in its entirety, just beginning to end. Here is Trump's audience reacting as he gives a speech, which is the subject of an impeachment, right? <laughs> you know, he, Trump was quite literally impeached for incitement of insurrection. So I filmed the moment that he allegedly incited and the people reacting who he allegedly incited. A very pertinent piece of history, in my very opinion. Very important. Very and important. YouTube took that down, claiming that the video in itself was election disinformation because Trump in it said, you know, things that disputed the election. Of course, I did not. My only statement, if you could call it that, is here's what happened, right? My statement is this is a true and accurate recording of what happened that day. And so I think that YouTube sort of conflates a documentary history of something that happened with the views of the people sort of being filmed. And so I they demonetized me when they took down that video. Um, and since then, on issues related to sort of Trumpism and COVID, I've had to put these sort of enormous disclaimers uh, to prevent that from happening again. But it worries me because I think that it could go on to other subjects where they will declare certain viewpoints uh, verboten. And I would say that there is a tendency by some people to assume that this is an issue that mostly matters to the right or people adjacent to the right wing. And in my case, I'm not you know, on the right wing, certainly, but I filmed Trump, who is and it was taken down. But I would caution against people believing that it can't happen all across the spectrum, right? Socialists, anarchists, anti-war activists, all of these sorts of voices tend to be suppressed by big tech as well. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. And, and I'm sorry for people who do think that it's just because people on the left will basically say that, that we are the ones that are ultimately the victims of that type of censorship because the right can always rely on the big money from donors. You know, you have these cable news stations like one that was just taken off, but, you know, to the right of Fox. Yeah, so basically. One American News, I believe, is the one you're referring to. But there's also Newsmax, Real exactly. America's Voice, and so forth. And yes. so they don't need, for example some money from YouTube necessarily to keep going, right? They have like the My Pillow guy or whoever else is funding their operation. Well, I, I'm never going to endorse censorship of anybody. To be to be honest, my own viewpoint is I advocate against censorship against journalists and so forth, right? I'm more likely to defend myself and other independent journalists. But on the other hand, I'm certainly not going to advocate that those people uh, should be censored, right? That's oh, never yeah, going to no, be my, uh, no, my point absolutely. Of view. I'm not saying that either. I'm just talking about how the left is often the just as much or if not more of a victim of censorship than the right. And when we're censored, we don't have other avenues in a way. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. The independent left, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think that part of the problem also is that the duality that is kind of like written about or, or talked about in mainstream media, like <laughs> they will like frame you know, CNN or, or MSNBC as, as the left. But when we're talking about the left being censored, we're talking, you know, I'm talking about like socialist anarchists, like that, oh, yeah, that kind absolutely. of, you know, like the very limited American scope of like liberal capitalism <laughs> versus conservative capitalists. Like, I think that the political landscape goes a lot further. And essentially, once you get outside that kind of center left to center right, that's where the censorship tends to happen. And again, like as you've been pointing out, that hits the the sort of true left very hard. Right. 
So again, comparing this, you know, Biden get a spine protest and the fact that it, you know, it, it didn't like say go viral at all. Right. But sure I not. saw a uh, coverage of a couple of Nazi protests in Orlando, Florida, which were filmed by, I think, citizen journalists on their phone. You know, it made it to MSNBC and, you know, the governor was asked about it. And, you know, at one of these protests, there was a, a man assaulted. I think he was a Jewish man assaulted. And, you know, he said that he had a Star of David on his car mm-hmm. or hanging from the mirror or something like that. And then Boston, there was a small group of, I don't know if it was the Patriot Front group or whatever, protesting in front of a hospital in reaction to the false claim by Donald Trump that white people are being discriminated against in terms of vaccines and other types of treatments for COVID. I don't remember the name of the group, but I don't believe that was Patriot Front, but it was a different avowed neo-Nazi group. Right. Uh, The Florida group was called the National Socialist Movement, which is a very long-term neo-Nazi group in the United States, like since the 1990s. Wow. Okay. So to see the comparison, like when you have uh, a group on the left uh, criticizing uh, Biden, you know, that's not getting any coverage. So I'm just noticing that in terms of, of making that comparison. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it is still obviously important to note when those sorts of extreme elements are, are doing activities of various sorts in the National Socialist Movement's case because violence broke out in Florida over it. Um, in the case of Patriot Front marching in Washington, D.C. Uh, last week, you know, their attempt to form coalition with more mainstream conservative groups. I think that's notable. I think it's certainly worth covering. And, and I did cover it. But yeah, I do think that as we talk about those things, the fact that there are progressives uh, criticizing Joe Biden uh, shouldn't then be set aside and and forgotten about. And then finally, I just wanted to ask you about this kind of post January 6th movement and whether you see any difference in how protests are treated since, since the attack on the U S Capitol last year. Yeah. So there's been a, a lot of change really since January 6th. So from that time period of like November, 2020 to January, 2021, there were massive mobilizations, uh, really the Trump coalition and all of the various factions of sort of Trump supporters were getting comfortable with each other. Proud Boys, militia people, people who, you know, sort of unite under the Trump umbrella, but are have kind of specific differences and not have been seen together, kind of all ended up as one big hodgepodge group, right? Tens of thousands of people coming into D.C. on a few occasions. And following January 6th, there was a very, very rapid, I guess, taking seriously of them by law enforcement. And I think even for those who were not arrested, they really felt that presence, right? A lot more FBI visits, knocking on people's doors and so forth. And I think that spooked them, right? There was about a half a year where there was very little right-wing activism following that. And since then, it has really reformed itself, not that it's become any more or less extreme, but that they have changed their kind of branding. And so whereas those coalitions organized before around Trump, there is a a lot less going on in the way of events specifically calling themselves that. And now 
there's a lot more focus, particularly on uh, coronavirus restrictions, vaccine mandates, and things like that, which that has sort of become the new issue that has rallied together people who are like-minded under that same umbrella. And so it's interesting because they've probably been growing in that way for, you know, the better part of the last half of half of a year uh, after kind of a half of a year of a break from right-wing activism. And so I do think that, you know, people have somewhat short-term memories. I think that that could probably continue to grow until there's sort of a climax, something like a January 6th or um, I do think that Trump will in all likelihood run again, or if not him, then a Trump approved or Trump similar candidate. And when that candidate either wins or loses, either there will be massive protest because that person won, or that person will lose and say that they didn't really lose, right? That, that the election was stolen or whatever. And so it is my opinion, it is my prediction, I guess, that things will probably heat up again very considerably. And so the stage that we're seeing right now of resurgent activism, I think it's slowly kind of growing, but it could, it'll be interesting to see how coalitions form over the next couple of years leading up to whatever the 2024 election brings. So, you know, when you were talking, it just reminded me of a couple more things. So I, I follow you on Facebook and I noticed that even though like you cover a variety of things, you know, like on the left and on the right or not or or neither, a lot of your followers seem to be definitely on the right <laughs> in terms of their reactions to posts and them like laughing at like progressives <laughs> on a pretty consistent basis. I do want to point out on that, that I strongly think that it is because I, I have a reason that I think that that happens. Because if you look at my Twitter, my audience there, I think, leans slightly to the left. Okay. But you are absolutely right that my that on my the News to Share Facebook page, the, <laughs> the comments are so overwhelmingly right wing. And I think that the reason for that is that Facebook sort of does the same thing that we're talking about, about the mainstream media, which is. I think that they tend to try to guide people toward what's going to get the most engagement, the numbers, whatever. And I think their algorithm has basically looked at, and whether whether this is something that a human being ever told Facebook to do as a strategy, or whether this just sort of naturally accumulated through their through their algorithm, I think what kind of happened is who's the most likely to respond viscerally when they see progressives protesting, right? It's not other progressives, it is conservatives, and particularly when I am live streaming. So I, I think that the phenomena that kind of happens is I go live and Facebook says, who should I show this to, right? The people who are going to spend the most time looking at it. And I think Facebook has created an environment where the people who are spending the most time watching a live stream are going to be somebody who's like essentially mad at it or thinks that they're, that they're funny, that they're a joke, that they want to make fun of them or troll it or whatever. And so I have no problem with conservatives watching the content, nor liberals, nor socialists, nor anybody, right? I want a healthy discussion. I want people to be exposed to ideas that they haven't seen before, which is why I'm out there live streaming political activism. I think that good activism will make its points and convince people and bad activism will make people more sure of their position that those people are wrong. It's not my job to call balls and strikes like that. But I think that Facebook has really delivered my content to one sort of audience, whereas Twitter has, it seems like can be a little bit more organic, but it has tended to guide people slightly more toward the left going into my content. And it's the same content on both platforms. That's so uh, interesting. No, that's so interesting. And you're right. I mean, yeah, it, it's really about uh, Facebook creating somewhat a toxic environment. It, it puts people into bubbles and 
it actually a lot of people on the left, those of us doing you know progressive media, we see that we cannot grow our pages. You know, it's very difficult, like right. for people to see our pages. You know, some people think that even they can't get likes. You know, <laughs> they can't get comments because uh, people are shielded from the content. But anyway. That is a whole other conversation and and we'll definitely have to continue our conversation. I really appreciate you making the time to uh, speak to me today. I've been speaking speaking to Ford Fisher, editor-in-chief of News to Share. Thank you, Ford. Thank you for having me (laughs) And that's it for today's show, which made me think more than most shows about the critical role that news organizations have in shaping and misshaping how we think how news can give the truth, but also perpetuate a lie. However you are hearing this show, remember to support independent media, which more and more are the only sources for true information not bought by or beholden to the 1%. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I want to thank Chantal James and Ford Fisher for their contributions to today's show. At our website, onthegroundshow.org, you can check out this and all of our current and past shows. Contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. You can follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averum, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M. Our podcast is On the Ground with Ezra Averam, and you can subscribe on all of your podcast platforms. The podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Stand and Rock, No Dapple, featuring Taboo, Truth Don't Die by Femi Kuti, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.